everybody. Happy Wednesday. It is the Fan Drive Time. Sportsnet 590 The Fan. I am Ben Ennis. The text line is open. 590-590. And the Blue Jays are back, baby. Take that, Luke Rayleigh. 20 runs. All is forgotten. That is true, though, that a Major League Baseball season is so unbelievably long that it's easy to get lost in the moment. So that that 20-1 to 1 win yesterday... Here's where the Blue Jays find themselves overall offensively this season. Fourth best offense in the AL, according to OPS. Third best, if you want to get nerdy and go WRC+. And they lead the major leagues of baseball in total hits. In fact, this team is off to a better start offensively than the one that finished as a top five offense across the board last season. Uh, Yeah, 9 for 14 with runners in scoring position yesterday certainly helps, and that's something that will obviously be regressing positively going forward. They're not going to continue to be uh, bottom half of uh, Major League Baseball hitting team with runners in scoring position while being a top five one overall. They're just, they're pretty similar to the one, at least offensively, to the team that we saw a season ago. They've been very healthy, but no longer the major league leader, by the way, in man games lost due to injury. They're, they're third best in that regard. But it's a, it's a whole new lease on life when you score 20 runs against the Rays. And then you look at the schedule and you see, oh, you got uh, Shane McClanahan uh, going against Yusei Kukuchi tonight. Game three of four from the Trop on Sportsnet 590, the fan, and Sportsnet 1 tonight. Let's talk to our pal, Adnan Verk, MLB Network, NHL Network, and the Cinephile Podcast. But before we get to anything specific about the Blue Jays, Adnan, I know there are specific rules now about position players pitching, but can we all admit that that's like, it's still a farce. Like anytime, with a 26-man roster, anytime that a position player has to come in to pitch in the eighth inning is a bit of a farce. Absolutely outrageous, Ben. Good to talk to you in an earlier time than normal. And yeah, I, when I saw the score... Obviously, they bludgeon the crap out of the race. Like, awesome. Hey, 20 runs like that, that'll put a little pep in your step and maybe lead to some confidence at that resounding way to end an untimely five-game losing streak. But then I saw 10 of those runs were scored against non-pitchers. Mm-hmm. I'm like, so it's ridiculous. Like, it's, it's really with a 10-1 score, which is still fantastic. We'll still take that. But the 20-to-1 is just absurd. And the whole thought was especially with the extra inning rule and we'd have less position players pitching. There's a time that it was cute and quaint and kind of funny. Now it's just tired. Right now you see it, you got like, who, like really striking up Vlad Jr., I suppose it's amusing, but then Vlad hits this 52-mile-an-hour pitch for a home run, so Vlad got his revenge. I'm with you. I, I generally roll my eyes when I see a position, pitcher, excuse me, a position player pitching. It's a, come a long day from when Jose Canseco was pitching on the mound. Yeah, and then uh, blew out his elbow, right? Like had, uh, had to have to, you know, TJ after uh, throwing it a little too hard. No, it's, it's yeah, it, it, it's cute when you have to do it, like when you're forced into it. Because the Blue Jays, what was that? Like a number of years ago, they were playing Cleveland. I think it was in July. I think it was around Canada Day. And they were in like the 18th inning. And I think it was it was both Ryan Goins and Darwin Barney had to pitch for the Blue Jays. So they were just like factually out of arms. Like that that is acceptable. That is an acceptable time to use position players. But not in May when you have a 26-man roster and what, you're down by 10. The rule is anytime you're down by eight, you can use a position player. How about like just if it gets to extra innings? That's the only time it should be acceptable, especially, like I said, early on, it's May. You've you've got extra pitchers. I I just don't – why? Like if I I said to you today, Adnan, the new rule is no position players before extra innings, who who disagrees with that? 
Yeah, I'm rubber stamping that. I think in last night's instance, Kevin Cash probably thinks, like, I don't want to blow up the bullpen. We're already down 10-1. We're not going to win. So let me just go ahead and screw these position players. Even to your point, they have arms available, but, but that's the thought. We're not going to win anyway, so who cares? Go ahead, we lose by, by 19 or by 9 runs. doesn't matter. I'm more impressed you dropped a Ryan Goins and Darwin Barney yeah. reference. I enjoyed both those guys in the highlights. Ryan Goins, on the rare occasion he had a home run, Goins, Goins, gone. Yep. But Darwin Barney was more proud of because I used to always reference Barney's version, one of the great Mordecai Richler books and an excellent movie adaptation by Paul Giamatti. Giamatti won Best Actor in a Golden Globe for that movie, and in his speech, thanked the entire country of Canada, specifically the great city of Montreal, for being so welcome to him. Darwin Barney, <laughs> Barney's version. Good book, great movie. <laughs> Man, yeah, you never know where you're going to take the conversation. I'm glad you took it there. All right, I'm, I'm going to bring it back to baseball, though, um, because we, we do have a more balanced schedule this season, not 19 games against your divisional opponents anymore. You still get more games against your division than any other teams in Major League Baseball. The Blue Jays now no longer alone in the cellar of the uh, American League East after the Red Sox uh, lost yesterday. They've lost three straight uh, and a couple in a row to the Angels, so both the Red Sox and the Blue Jays, eight and a half games back of the Rays at the top of this division. But there, there's a couple of ways I think you can view the the lack of divisional games when it comes to the start that the Rays are off to and, and, and the lack of success that the Blue Jays have had recently against divisional opponents. How do you view it as far as the Blue Jays' slow start and they're being at the, at the bottom half, or not the bottom half, in the absolute cellar of this division early on, considering there's not a ton of games against these teams the rest of the way. But on the flip side, you can you can look at that and say that the Blue Jays actually, you know, they're going to be playing easier opponents down the stretch because they're not playing more games against the toughest division in baseball. That's the way I look at it, the second way. I say the Blue Jays' intra-division record is the fourth worst in baseball. So they do not match up well with the big boys in their division. But thank God, rather than 19 games against the Rays and 19 against the Yankees and the Red Sox and O's, hey, we're trimming off 24 games there. So to me, I flip it on the optimistic level and go, let's just accept the fact the Blue Jays are not going to do well in their division. We're, we're scraping towards the wild card spot. Let's be honest. They're not going to catch the Rays. So that, that's the formula that I would look at for this Toronto team. But you're right. Ideally, you'd like to play better head-to-head because that's, that's the easiest way to make hay. And the Yankees and Blue Jays, as we know, have that contentious series. They're not matching up again until September. Mm-hmm. So you can just imagine how important those games will be. In all likelihood, the Jays and the Yankees will still be battling for a wild-card spot within a few games of each other. So you can't just say, well, make hay against non-division opponents because ultimately I feel like those head-to-heads, those six games against the Yankees, will play a major part in how their season goes down. But, yeah, big picture I say, hey, balanced schedule helps teams like Toronto in a loaded division. It means you can take a breath a little bit and not just uh, not just get beaten up like the big boys. Uh, one of the big boys in this lineup uh, is supposed to be Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And he had the six RBIs yesterday, uh, punctuated by a grand slam off a position player uh, in, in the ninth inning. Uh, he now has eight home runs, which is okay. Decent, but certainly not among the league leaders. And I know you saw my tweet a couple of days ago, which is resulted in plenty of Twitter discourse about uh, what Vlad Jr.'s ceiling is, but it's just it, it's just factual that outside of that 2021 season where he played a bunch of games in minor league ballparks that were super uh, hitter-friendly, he has not been that elite offensive guy. If you had to make a choice, I, I feel like this is not the first time I've asked you this, but things have changed in, in between the last time I've asked you this and today. If you had to choose between extending Bo Bichette 
or Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who are you choosing today? Yeah, you're right, Ben. It's not the first time you've asked me, but I'm choosing Bo Bichette. And even though you and I can look at the analytics and say, you know, his defensive run save pales in comparison to other elite shortstops, the guy hits. All right, he's going to lead the league in hitting as far as actual total hits for the third straight season. Maybe he's a batting champion as well. He's always great down the stretch, and you feel like he's a real spark plug and catalyst for this team. And Toronto very smartly bought out Bo's getting taken care of done that you feel like he could be a eight-year 250 million dollar type player now chapman's going to be up now he slowed down after that incredible start but you still feel like chapman's going to be getting 150 180 200 million dollars so if you start doing the math and go oh if you actually extend them to a full length of the deal but they don't necessarily have to but that'd be like 250 chapman's 200 flat junior's probably 300 like i think if you just ask the average person go well hey of the three of those guys hey flat junior's the one that had that remarkable season second in mvp he's going to get the most money but that's why I jumped all over your tweet because you articulated exactly what I have felt. And I said, oh, I'm hopping on the bed on his wagon. And exactly what you said. He said he's a very good player. No one's disputing he's not a good hitter. He's a very good hitter. But he's not great. He's not elite. Aside from, as you perfectly pointed out, that year he's bludging the ball in what, let's be honest, were not major league ballparks. So the sample says I think now is clear. Like he's, he's a good player. And he obviously deserves big money. But this idea of you have to sign Vlad Jr. at all costs, I dispute that. I really do. I, I think if Toronto has to balance the books, I wouldn't feel great about giving $300 million to this guy. And the other night, okay, again, small sample size, defensively a couple errors that his foot stepped on. You know, I think he's, he's improved at first base. And he's, he's done a decent job. But Bichette, he's playing a premium position. Even if you feel like it's shortstop, he doesn't have the range, you can still shift him to second. That, to me, it's, it's a no-brainer right now. And I, and I agree with you for asking me that because it wasn't always a no-brainer. Now I'm like, no, no. Bo's the guy. And again, I like Vlad Jr. <laughs> I'm just saying this thought of open your wallet to the $300 million, I wouldn't agree with that. And I think even David Sampson was on the show, which is a real low for your show. I can't believe Sampson was on. But <laughs> I, would, I would have to admit this instance. I would have to agree with David, who I think was espousing the same belief that Vlad is not his father, right? Yeah, and that's it. Like, it, it sounds disparaging, like, when you talk about him in these terms, but nobody's saying he's a bad player. I mean, just look at look at the, the totality of his seasons outside of 2021. Very good, above average, but he plays a premium position, and also he's supposed to be, you know, he's supposed to be like Aaron Judge-like, and I'd see Aaron Judge hit a game-tying home run in the bottom of the ninth against a division rival yesterday and, you know, hit 60-plus home runs a season ago. We had the one year of Vlad and and you thought that was a launching point, except it hasn't been. And then you look at the 21 home runs hit in those minor league ballparks. It's, it's just hard not to have the the takeaway that he's not exactly what we were sold on, and and what we all believed was was going to happen after he killed it uh, coming up through through the minor leagues. I do want to get to the big discussion in this city outside of baseball. Uh, Adnan, and um, I don't know if you saw it today, but uh, so Kyle Dubas, obviously, you've been following that. Kyle Dubas uh, has his press conference on the Monday, talks about the family stresses that he's had as general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs and that he has to kind of evaluate whether he wants to become the general manager and then the decision is taken away from him as uh, the president of the organization. Brandon Shanahan says, yeah, once he showed like some doubt about uh, his future in that role, that kind of opened things up for me. And, And Elliot I think quite uh, eloquently in his most recent uh, article on sportsnet.ca, I said, in the 21st century, we, take a, uh, we talk a big game about mental health, family time, burnout, and work-life balance. Those are important, and I'll be the first to admit I could do a better job managing them. But if you want to reach and stay at the top of your field, whether it be sports, business, politics, media, the arts, you name it, 
You must be all in. It's not for everyone, which is totally fine. We all decide what's important to us. If you aren't, or there's even the suggestion you might not be, this is what happens. I, I couldn't agree more with that, Adnan. And, and obviously, you've reached incredible heights, and you've, you've been able to, to find balance because you're a great family man as well. But the idea that somebody in the position of general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs showing signs that he's not totally committed and that being something that turns his superiors off, I, I, I think that's a totally reasonable take. Yeah, I think it's a great take by Fridge and really well written. And I return the compliment to you, my friend. You've reached, obviously, very impressive heights as well, in addition to being a great dad. But I think that it's rare that you're able to pull that off. And I do think Fridge's point is correct. In the high-stakes world of professional sports, it's still eat or be eaten. And that's not a criticism of Brendan Shanahan, but he's like an old-school guy who's like, we have to be 110% committed. And if you're working 70 and 80-hour weeks, that's not enough. It's 70, 90-hour weeks. And, you know what, don't worry. Your kids will understand. One day you'll win a Stanley Cup, and then you can tuck them in at night and tell them, look at what I did. I transformed the city. But nobody wants to hear, hey, at 4.30, can I leave early? I'm going to go to my son's t-ball game. Like, no. Like, that's, that's not going to fly with certain people, and they will still cast a jaundiced eye towards you. And the whole issue of mental health, he's bang on. Like, now we're at a point, before you couldn't even say I have a mental health issue or you'd be disparaged to your face and behind your back. Mm-hmm. Now if you say, I need a week off, um, I'm just having some anxiety issues, you'll probably get the okay from your boss, but you'll get some sickering from coworkers. Like, what, even, what, what does he have to be anxious about? Or what is he depressed about? Like, he's got a great life. Like, all right, he's loafing. Like, we're not at the point now, if I break my leg, I can't come to work. Everyone understands that. Even then, like, you can come to work. Come on. You're an anchor. Your voice still works, right? It's fine. Just take some painkillers. We're good to go. <laughs> but we're not at the point now with mental health that you can do it without somebody casting some skepticism towards it. And, um... I, it's unfortunate, by the way. First, I wish we could get to the point you could do that, but I really do see both sides. I can see Dubas saying, hey, man, this is taking a real toll on me. I'm exhausted. I kind of need a break to just kind of set my mind right. But I can totally see British Shannon going, oh, really? Well, how about I make that break longer for you? Like, I need somebody, because this job is just so incredibly difficult. I'm trying to overcome 50 years plus of demons in arguably the greatest hockey city in the world. So I, I cannot have you one foot in, one foot out. And again, I do think you can manage and have a productive career and also be a wonderful family man. You can. But I, I can understand Brendan Shannon in that moment raising an eyebrow going, you know what? I already wasn't 100% committed to this guy. Now my decision has been made easier. It's callous. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I understand it. Yeah, I, I guess I don't necessarily disagree. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't necessarily disagree with it. I, 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 do, I do cast myself in the situation of, of whether I would want to be the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs and everything that it entails and whether I could be the father and husband that I hope that I am, that I try to be every day, and I don't think I could. And that's why I wouldn't take the job. And that's why, you know what, I, I, I don't know if you also saw Kyle Dubas' statement yesterday uh, that he released on Twitter where he said, hey, Maple Leafs are well within their rights not to extend me. That's, that's their call. I was, I was not under contract. They decided not to offer me another one. That's their right, and he took the high road, and I think he's going to end up somewhere, and, and odds are it's, it's, it's in Pittsburgh right now. But I couldn't do that job. Like, yeah. I, I, there, are, there are certain sacrifices... I would not make, and if it if it's all encompassing as it seems to be, and and the emotional toll that that thing takes, despite all the accolades, I, I don't know if I'd, I'd be the man for the job. Like that's, and, and I I think Brendan Shannon also rightly pointed out that everybody has their eyes wide open going into a situation like that, that they all understand it. I just I think everybody wants to apply their own sensibilities in the jobs that they do to something 
that's just not like what we do, right? Like the president of the United States, like, I'm, I'm sorry, you'd love to have a work-life balance, but like you, you got your finger on the nuclear button, right? Like you, you just, you, there's no such thing. And I, I know I just compared being the GM of the Maple Leafs to the president of the United States. It's not a one-to-one, but you know what I'm getting at. No, 100%, dude. When I was at ESPN, you can imagine what a pressure cooker that is, how competitive it is. You feel like you can never take a day off. I remember thinking I could never take the holidays off because the holidays is when the big boys would be off. So you'd want to work those holidays. 100%. Try to impress some boss to work harder. So you're like, okay, I can never take off 4th of July. I, I have to work Christmas because that's my time to shine. So you're right. You can get in this trap in your head, and then ultimately someone has to tell you, it's okay. Like, it's, it's not that big a deal if you're taking a day off for your son's birthday. Like, you're not going to lose your job. No one's going to despair. It's okay, but you're right. Once you get in that cycle, it becomes very vicious. And, and the point about vacation, it's funny. I can relate to it on a small level, which our boy Blake would appreciate. At WWE, I, I think when it said too loud, but I asked him when I said, what's the vacation policy like? And the guy looked at me with a jaundiced eyes. Excuse me? I'm like, I, I was just curious because there is no vacation. Vince McMahon <laughs> is never taking a day off. Therefore, neither are you. And I'm like, oh. So I'm like, I could, like, you know, it's just like a week. Like, no, what do you, what do you mean? Every Monday, you are the voice of Monday Night Raw. 52 weeks of the year. We take zero Mondays off. I'm like, all right, so if you want to take a vacation, you go Tuesday to Sunday, and you better make sure you're in that chair Monday. I'm like, all right. And to <laughs> me, I, I think that's a little extreme. I think it's okay missing a week, but different strokes are different folks. I get it. Yeah, and being the voice of Monday Night Raw, again, not the same as being uh, president of the United States <laughs> or <laughs> prime minister of Canada. But yeah, probably like allow for some leeway there. All right, before we let you go, yeah. We got an hour and a half left of succession ever, um, which is, I mean, man, the, this season has been, I, I, honestly, I thought it started off slowly, uh, but it's, it's really yeah. building it to a crescendo. But I am a little bit nervous about how many loose ends there are to tie up in an hour and a half of, oh. of television, dude. Like, where are you on, on the nervousness scale? I completely echo your sentiments on the season itself. I thought they really lost a lot with Logan being gone. I said, man, there's no two or three episodes. I felt they were treading water, almost as if they were trying to find their way as writers and directors, just as the actors and characters are trying to find their way without their figurehead. But the last couple of weeks have really been strong and really get a showcase thing for all those actors. I love all the different theories going out there. I mean, I love people just taking a swing going. Maybe, maybe the election gets overturned. You know, Kendall, it feels like he's got a moral sense. Maybe he tries to take out Mencken and tries to stop the merger. Matson ends up being foiled. I, I could see that happening because I go by this theory, Ben, which is that whoever is the so-called best actor or the anointed one often gets rewarded. So meaning mm. when I'm watching, like, Knives Out, I'm like, I already know Edward Norton is going to be critical because he's a big deal. And right, Edward Norton's not taking the role unless he's a major figure. And in the, in the chain of succession, Jeremy Strong, our boy, has become the guy. Like, he's really the star of the show now, especially about Brian Cox. He's won the Emmy. He's doing major films with Aaron Sorkin and other directors. So a part of me goes, I can see Jesse Armstrong, the writer, just saying, well, I have a fondness for Jeremy and for Kendall. So Ken's going to be the guy. Like, I just can't see shit winning. But I think the more likely outlook is this. The show is so pessimistic and so cynical. Mm -hmm. And Ken, by the way, is not without his own warts. I I think nobody wins. I think it's it's absolute anarchy. A show like this, it would be too convenient, as you said, to tie up the loose end and go merger dropped, uh, election overturned, Kendall now the CEO. Like, I remember that the criticism of Breaking Bad's finale was that Vince Gilligan tied up too many loose ends. But I liked it. I said, no, he cleaned up everything. You know exactly where the show ends. The criticism of The Sopranos was they didn't tie up enough loose ends. Of course, the cut to black, what happened to Tony? So it's a real trick for these creators. Do you tie up too much, as some argued Vince Gilligan did? Do you not tie up enough with The Sopranos, or do you tie up in the middle? 
guessing succession and the way that it has gone, I'm guessing I'm leaning towards anarchy and nothing is truly resolved. The only hints I can take is one of the actors, I think it was Kieran Culkin, he's at a Hollywood roundtable, and he said something to the effect of, you know, I wish we'd gone longer. I would have liked another season, but there could always be a chance for more. So there's not going to be like a meteor and they all die. I think we can discount that. The Roy family will still live in some, some way. You know what? Someone was uh, was sending around the the old uh, Jerry Seinfeld interview um, uh, the, from about ten years ago with Howard Stern talking about the offer that he was given to to extend that series by another year. It was like somewhere in the neighborhood of like one hundred and fifty million dollars, and he turned it down because he just felt that any longer, and they might have started to lose their fastball, and maybe the perception of the entire show and the series run would have been would have been altered. Uh, I know, like, I am wanting more, and it's going to be a bummer to lose this show, but don't you feel like four seasons, they, they, they've kind of done it correctly, that, that they are going out on a high? Yeah, initially I thought it was premature. For some reason, I just thought I had five is a good, solid number, but five seasons of this show, it's generally eight-episode eight episode seasons. So, like, yeah, 40 episodes, 40 hours of the best drama on television. But as the season has unfolded, again, I really, I miss Brian Cox a great deal. I did think they kind of scuttled a little bit for a couple episodes. You know what? They could have done another six-episode season, but this probably does feel fitting to get out now and better to go out on top than to overstay your welcome. And I love Seinfeld, but that show really lost its luster once Larry David left. He yeah. left after the seventh season, yep. and the last two seasons of Seinfeld were pretty, pretty rough. So I think it's a smart move they're making. What's also crazy is this. Two other really good shows are also ending this weekend. The Marvelous Mrs. Basil final show is this Friday, available on Amazon Prime, and Barry which is a terrific show on HBO, dark comedy from Bill Hader. I believe the finale is also this Sunday. The reason I say believe is no one's mentioning it, even though it's also on HBO and it's after <laughs> succession. I have to keep double-checking it. I'm pretty sure it's an eight-episode season, and this would be the eighth episode. So I feel like it's a pretty big weekend for, for television, especially if you like prestige TV. Marvelous Business Basil, it's first season one. Best show, you know, best comedic show, best actress, best supporting actress, Alex Borstein, Tony Shalhoub is one best supporting actor. That show's gone. Succession, Emmy juggernaut, and they are going to sweep the Emmys in September when it comes to best series and best writing for Jesse, best director, et cetera. And then Barry, which, again, is a really dark horse black sheep of the show. But this is what happens. Now you can lose three shows in three days, and rather than having this colossal feeling like in the 80s, you go, oh, my God, Family Ties is ending. Cheers is over. What will we do? Now there's so much content, you just flip the page and go, oh, what else is on? Like, yeah. like, like my next Friday, there'll be another show everybody is <laughs> binge-watching and glued to, but I'm sure nothing is good as Succession. What the, one of the best comments of the show I can make, Ben, is they've made live viewing important again. Yeah. Right? In the past, you could say, well, I'll just DVR it. Now you feel like, no, no, Sunday at 9, i got to have the boys in bed. I have to watch this. I don't want any spoilers. My phone's off. That, to me, is really what is one of the great... Uh, Great legacies of the show. No, it's 100%. I, I love that communal viewing aspect of it. Uh, can't wait for this Sunday. Can't wait to talk uh, to you about it next week. Adnan, thanks as always, pal. Always fun, Ben. A great job, fun. So I've told you before, there's nothing harder, man. Nothing Solo ready or you're talking to yourself. Good no. stuff. No, I know. Yeah, again, President of the United States or Solo Radio. What's tougher? Hmm. <laughs> it's up to you to decide. See you, pal. See you, buddy. Uh, Adnan Verk, MLB Network, NHL Network, and the cinephile podcast all right um when we come back uh we're gonna talk uh a little bit more about the doug armstrong of uh, of it all when it comes to the toronto maple leafs uh gm search but i, I want to uh, thank our friends at burgers priest who dropped by with a special lunch for the crew here it was delicious they had the like dipping sauce for the fries which was awesome it was uh, fresh tomatoes and and lettuce on the burgers um 
I, I, I thought I was going to drink a coffee, but then I had to put the coffee aside to drink the, the, or to eat the burger and then, you know, delay my coffee intake. So I'm, I'm a little bit uh, thrown awry that way, but it was delicious. It's the start of the Burgers pre-Smash Burger Summer. Hashtag Smash Burger Summer. Because it isn't summer without a Smash Burger, always made with 100% premium Canadian beef and hand-smashed to perfection. Thanks to the folks at the Burgers Priest. All right, when we come back, so it really does feel like uh, we're moving closer to a resolution because, you know, we, we, we kind of have to. Uh, and Brad for a Living, I guess, is going to be in the city at some point this week. Elliot Friedman reporting that he expects him to be in the city to interview for the vacant GM position with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And he's the betting favorite and he's worked in a Canadian market and had some success, not a ton. And I think he would be accepted as a viable GM option for the Toronto Maple Leafs. But I'll tell you what, if they were somehow able to make it work with Doug Armstrong, there's a hiring that you can't quibble with at all. Now, will they be able to make that work? Another question. Apparently, no opt-out, three more years on his deal. But he's a Canadian kid, not a kid anymore, but from Ontario, would he be interested in some legacy building by taking the biggest job in his sport? We'll talk to Jeremy Rutherford, blues writer for The Athletic Nexus. The fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Mary Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I am Ben Ennis. The text line is open, 590-590. Got a couple of interesting ones already. Be sure to uh, read those as the show progresses. We're on until 5 o'clock when Blair and Barker takes over uh, until another uh, 6.30. First pitch, Blue Jays and Tampa Bay Rays down in St. Pete. All right, so the silence out of St. Louis. Oh, it's, it's deafening. Where are you, Blues? Where are you, Doug Armstrong? Putting to rest, putting to bed, these rumors of uh, a potential departure from the only franchise you've won a Stanley Cup with, you've had great success with, you've won an Executive of the Year award with. Um, I know he doesn't have an opt-out. I know he's under contract for three more years, but until we hear something definitive, the speculation will continue. Let's talk to Jeremy Rutherford, Blues writer for The Athletic. How's it going, Jeremy? Oh, good. Just sitting here in St. Louis. You know us. Sports writers, we like to fan the flames, right? <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed your piece today, and and yeah, it, 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 you outlined all the all the the major talking points here. Let let's just like let's start the conversation here. Um, what happens if the Maple Leafs make the call to the St. Louis Blues? What happens at that point? Tom Stillman says, Brendan, uh, I like you, buddy, and I know that you had to make the phone call. Uh, but we like Doug here in St. Louis. He's under contract through 2026, and you're going to have to find somebody else. What if Doug Armstrong sort of kind of like is interested and intrigued by the idea? And I, I, I know, you know, there's there's some breadcrumbs there. In an interview he did in, in 2019, he was intrigued certainly by the possibility of becoming a, a general manager of a Canadian franchise. Like what if, what if this is something he's truly interested in and he brings it to Tom Stillman himself? What happens at that point? 
Yeah, I could see a conversation like that. They have a mutual interest, uh, you know, in, in respect for each other uh, and their well-being. I think for years they've gotten along and obviously had a lot of success here in St. Louis. And so when I say that Tom Stillman would say uh, thanks for calling Brendan, but uh, we're going to keep our guy, you know, I realize that uh, there are other scenarios of which you mentioned here that uh, there could be a situation where Doug Armstrong says, Tom, I, I'd at least like to talk to him, and, and Tom would uh, perhaps, you know, think about that. Again, I, I think that at the end of the day, he would, he would say that, uh, Doug, we really want to keep you here, and I'm not going to let you walk away from your contract. But, you know, like you say, if Doug comes to him with those feelings, I think they'd at least have to have the conversation and uh, ask him, you know, why does he want to move and, and how serious is any interest he'd have in Toronto because – as I mentioned in the article, I think definitely that would be a situation that Doug uh, would possibly have some interest in. But there's just so much here in St. Louis that uh, he's been here for a long time. As you mentioned, he won the Stanley Cup. He's got a couple more years left on this deal. And after the Blues have kind of floundered here the last year or two, he's got some things he needs to uh, get turned around. Yeah, and uh, and the path to success not obvious with the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's not either with the Blues. But, yeah, you mentioned the three first-round picks. I, I get it. I get both sides of the argument, but I do wonder, hey, listen, I'm just uh, employing my own sensibilities here. Um, Say I had a guy under contract, and yeah, he's been a great employee for me, and he's brought me great success and added to my my wealth and yada, yada, yada. But if he says he wants to leave, coming back with, hey, you're under contract, no dice. Like, isn't there a level of awkwardness that might be difficult to overcome and like the idea that he's uh, president of hockey operations and GM emeritus is probably unrealistic. And at some point, if the success doesn't come for, for this Blues team, like he'll be handed his walking papers. Like how does that change the relationship if he brings that idea to, to the guy that signs his paychecks? Yeah, you're right. You know, I think that uh, over the years I've learned that that awkwardness, you, that's business. You eventually get over it if you want to have that conversation with your owner you have it and, you know, feelings are stated and you try to move on forward. But I would think that that awkwardness would be real initially uh, for this reason, uh, because Doug Armstrong does have a contract for a couple more years and the situation that the blues are in, they have three first round picks coming up uh, this summer. And you look at like Toronto, one of the teams looking for a general manager, you know, who's out there that's available. I would think that, after what the Blues have done in terms of uh, provided for Doug Armstrong, making him president of hockey operations, making him one of the highest paid executives in the entire league, Tom could look at Doug and say, listen, this is a pivotal point. We're just a month away from the draft. You know, this is your baby. You know the pulse of this organization. We need you here. There's nobody else out there that can help me. And I would think that conversation would end And you know, really, like seriously, you really want to give this a talk with Toronto because this is the situation that we're in here in St. Louis. Do, do you think it is anything that we haven't heard anything definitively? And it's not like there's, yeah, hard reporting that even the Leafs have, have reached out and, and maybe you're just giving the whole rumor thing credence if you do speak on it. But like, are you, does it raise any red flags that we haven't heard anything from Doug or from the blues yet? I don't think so. That's one of the great things uh, for, about Doug Armstrong is he's got a very tight inner circle. That stuff you know, doesn't get out. It's the same with signings and trades. You rarely uh, see those types of things come out nationally, even when uh, when it's involving St. Louis. And then as far as uh, St. Louis, Tom Stillman, too, the Blues owner, you know, he's kept things quiet. He's kind of followed 
Doug Armstrong's model. But, you know, we as reporters do our due diligence, you know, make the phone calls. And yesterday, uh, today, what I wrote was a, a column, but I feel good in reporting what I reported and that uh, the Blues would have no interest in allowing uh, Brendan to talk to uh, Doug Armstrong. Uh, he's 58 years old. Like we said, he's won a Stanley Cup in 2019 with the Blues. He's won an Olympic gold medal. He's been an executive of the year. Um, and, and, you know, people that reach those heights are never satisfied. Do, do you have any idea what, what still motivates him? Like, because that's, that's the argument, right? If, if you're sitting where I am in the city that I'm in, that if you're the guy that leads this franchise to its first Stanley Cup since 1967, you're immortalized forever, you're in the Hall of Fame, and maybe he's already on a, a Hall of Fame track if, if, you know, they win another cup and he builds it back up in St. Louis. But like, do, do you understand that argument for, for Doug Armstrong? Yeah. Do you think that would have appeal to him? Yeah, for sure. I, as I wrote the article, I thought to myself, you know, even if Doug Armstrong, you know, doesn't talk to Toronto, even if he doesn't have that conversation with Tom Stillman, you know, just seeing his name in the headlines connected to the Toronto job, I can see him, you know, just daydreaming. Hey, what, what would it be like? And, and I, as I wrote the article, I wrote, you know, you can picture Doug Armstrong in that Toronto management booth, you know, Austin Matthews scores and he's kind of taking a chug of his water. Uh, you know, he, he's Canadian through and through. He, he really is. And, you know, that's why he has the, the deep connection to Team Canada. He wants to be involved. Look, his resume is, is fairly well built right now, and I sat down with him a couple weeks ago, and he said, I'm going to the World Championships, you know, to, to impart to do this for Team Canada, but also to help the St. Louis Blues. You know, whatever my resume is, whatever people think about the Hockey Hall of Fame is what it is, but I want to go help this team at the World Championships. So that's the type of guy he is. That's what I think makes him attractive, along with his experience and the success he's had for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah, that that he's yeah, Team Canada, that's a big job. <laughs> and, and at the Olympic Games and and winning a gold medal, that's a, that's a significant achievement because yeah, that's that's where you wonder and and you're right in pointing out that you can envision him just like his demeanor as as the head of the snake for the biggest uh, media market when it comes to the National Hockey League that we have. But I do wonder like how different the media market, like what what are the the constraints on his time? What is the pressure like in St. Louis and and do you think he has the type of makeup to, to, to be a guy that wouldn't be overwhelmed by that in, in taking a job like this? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, the constraints aren't nearly uh, you know as time-consuming here as they would be in Toronto. I've covered the league for 20 years. I've seen both sides of it here and in, in Toronto. Uh, I think that uh, you, you look at the pressure that he'd be under in Toronto, I think that it's really significant. Um, I'll, I'll point this out, that this, the, the pressure – uh, to be on that management staff for Team Canada, whether it be the Olympics. Look, he was going to be the GM of this uh, past Olympic team for Team Canada. Obviously, it didn't happen, uh, but they have that much faith in him. And and I think that he would he would look at that challenge in Toronto, and, and I think it would probably even invigorate him. And he'd want to do that, and he would want to do a good job. And he'd do a good job. I pointed out in the story today, uh, the Maple Leafs have a lot of key decisions to make, the core four, uh, those types of decisions. I've witnessed in St. Louis, Doug Armstrong, since 2010, trade the number one overall pick, Eric Johnson, decide not to re-sign David Backus, trade the captain, Alex Petrangelo, let Ryan O'Reilly, uh, you know, he didn't re-sign him, so he goes in a trade uh, to the Toronto Maple Leafs. So he's made those types of decisions, and they all haven't turned out perfect. They don't for every GM but he's made him and he's got experience in that. I think he'd do well with that job. And, you know, to go back to your original question, you know, I think he would look at that as a challenge for sure. And yes, I do think he could handle it. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, yeah, who knows if it'll ever uh, end up uh, at his desk as far as the request to, to, to interview for the open uh, GM job in uh, the city of Toronto. Um, he also operates in a different manner than Kyle Dubas did, right? Like he is the president of hockey operations and the general manager. He answers to, uh, to nobody but the owner, Tom Stillman. Um, how, how, how would you, like in th- theoretical terms, and we understand it's, it's very unlikely uh, do, according to all the reporting that he would end up in Toronto. But how do you think that power structure would work? Because we, as you also pointed out in the piece, Lou Lamorello has worked under Brendan Shanahan, so they've made it work. Obviously, no shrinking violet there. But how do you think that the working relationship could work with a guy who is directly, that he's reporting to directly above him? Yeah, that, to me, that point right there, and, and that's the main point, and I knew we'd eventually get to it, is the, uh, is the thing that I would like to try to understand hypothetically, if Tom Stillman said, hey, Doug, Brendan called, yeah, why don't you guys have a chat, you know, just check and see what he has to say. Uh, If that step, we can get past that for a moment, and it came down to, okay, Brendan, what's the the structure going to be like? Look, Doug Armstrong was under John Davidson here in St. Louis for a couple years, and then in, I believe it was 2013, Doug Armstrong was appointed president of hockey operations. Since that day in 2013, we're talking a decade ago, he has been under no one. And yes, he does have a great relationship, as I mentioned with Tom Stillman. He bounces, uh, you know, the trade when he finalizes trades, uh, signings, so on and so forth. But none of that is dictated by Tom Stillman. If you go to Toronto and if you have a situation where you're reporting to Brendan, I'm sure you know they have a relationship already. I, I'm sure that that could be something that could work out. But I would, if you had Doug Armstrong right in front of you in the room, hey Doug, would you have interest in reporting to somebody, President of Hockey Operations? I can't imagine he would want to do that. So, you know, what would Brendan be up for? I, I'm certain. I'm certain that Brendan wouldn't want to give up that power uh, either. I don't know if there's a situation where if Doug did go, where there could be some sort of even Steven situation in terms of that power. I don't see how that could happen. And to me, that would be the biggest question, the biggest sticking point in trying to make that arrangement work. Does that format work in this sport, right? Because you mentioned that the Blues had it. They went away from it, and they won a Stanley Cup. Um, do, does it work? And, and the Maple Leafs have notably not won a Stanley Cup since Brendan Shanahan took over the presidency, and he's done a lot of good things, and he hired Lou Lamorello, and he hired Kyle Dubas, and they've had a lot of regular season success, and they, they won the draft lottery as well. Uh, got a guy who scored uh, 60 goals. But does that format work where there is a, a president and then below him a GM in this sport? I think it can. I don't want to sit here and say that it can't work. And, you know, on the fly here, you try to think of different examples where it has worked. Uh, But I I think more often than not, and you might agree with me here, a lot of times that we hear about floundering franchises, we hear about power struggles in the front office. And it might not always be a a power struggle, but even if you look in, in Pittsburgh here, Rob Rossi at The Athletic, Josh Rowey had a great story today about the dysfunction in Pittsburgh with uh, Burke and, and Hextall, and, and that's not to say that those two weren't on the same page, but you just had a situation where it's tough to move forward when you have two people mm-hmm. who are trying to make these key decisions. And so I think that's that might be why the Blues have had a lot of success. Uh, you look at the last 10 or 12 years with Doug Armstrong because they had that one person who was involved in that. Not only is he had the, the, the blueprint, the big picture in his mind of what he wants done, but he's also the only guy calling the shots. Yeah, and I wonder for that reason, or at least that's part of the reason, I wonder if that takes some of the appeal away from the Maple Leafs job. I mean, not if you're unemployed. Like, if you're Brad for a living, you're like, give me that job, like, immediately. I'd like it. Uh, and, and he's apparently the front runner, and he's going to interview for it at some point, apparently, 
this week. But does that take some of the shine off it that there is a seemingly a murky power dynamic at the at the top of this organization? I would think that the shine would still be there because it's Toronto. I would think the shine would be there because of the roster. And I know Leafs fans are going to say that the, the roster needs some, you know, tinkering, retooling, whatever. You know, I get that. I'm not trying to say it's a perfect situation. You've got a lot of major decisions uh, ahead of you. But I would think that the shine would still be there from uh, Doug's vantage point. I just think there's probably two or three other things, some of which we've addressed in terms of uh, the power that, that he would have, you know, leaving St. Louis, things like that that would make that decision uh, more difficult than, uh, you know, whether how much shine is on it because of, uh, you know, the, the power that he would have. Uh, I, I want to ask you, Jeremy, about, you know, the, the narrative that is uh, spun out of the, the Kyle Dubas departure here, uh, that in his Monday media availability talked about the, the personal difficulties of being the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs and the strain it's put on his family. And that was apparently the beginning of the end of his relationship uh, with Brendan Shanahan as, as, as Brendan began the process of, of moving off of him mentally. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it is just a job. It's, it's, it's just, you know, it's just being in charge of a hockey team, but it is a pretty elite job when you look at, you know, it, comparing it to, to just normal folks like us uh, and you get uh, compensated quite fairly or, or quite adequately, I would say. Uh, is it fair to ask these people to, to put aside their, their personal lives and, and live a life, uh, that's like job one and then family two? Yeah, no, it's a good question. It's just that, you know, I think it's different in different cities. I, th- I think Doug here in St. Louis has it pretty good, just to be quite honest with you. First of all, he's one of the hardest workers. You talk to people in that inner circle. He doesn't leave a stone unturned. You know, he's constantly making the flights to Europe for the scouting. He's constantly involved in these situations. I think I talked to him one time about what do you actually do when you settle down and take a break? And he's like, I don't know. I don't know that there are too many breaks. So he's a guy who works hard already. Uh, you know, what it's like to carry those hours and then feel the pressure that he would feel in Toronto, which I will admit would be different. Yeah, I can't speak to that. I don't know what uh, Kyle Dubas, uh, you know, went through in, in terms of that. But, yes, these people certainly should be able to lead their lives. I think uh, for the most part they try to as much as they can. But, you know, the way they're wired it's to, to, to be constantly working and finding the next player, so on and so forth. So it probably comes down to, I guess your answer is uh, how much they put on themselves. And I think all 32 guys, we could say that they, they put a ton of pressure on themselves regardless of the market that they're in. 100%. Uh, well, uh, we'll see if anything uh, continues to bubble up out of, out of St. Louis. And uh, we'll be uh, refreshing your, your Twitter feed to, to get the latest. Jeremy, thanks for this. Yep, thanks a lot. See you, Ben. See ya. Jeremy Rutherford, Blues writer. For the athletic, uh, nothing to see here. That's what everybody keeps saying. Like, nothing to see here, not going to happen. Don't bother asking. And he didn't say that because he did write a story about it on The Athletic. Um, and Cam Jansen did join us and did entertain the, the topic of conversation. Like, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's like a two-pronged thing. It's like, hey, I just don't think this would happen. And if it would, if it did, if it was presented to the owner, Tom Stillman, he would say, I got a guy under contract. I love this guy. He's not going anywhere. We got... We got the draft right around the corner. There's no way I'll even hand this to him. On the other hand, he's talking about a 58-year-old guy who's done everything. He's won a Stanley Cup, won an Olympic gold medal. He's been an executive of the year who, yes, is motivated by, you know, winning another Stanley Cup and returning the St. Louis Blues to the playoffs and relevancy and yada, 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 and, and taking those first-round picks and creating the next great core of St. Louis Blues players. But also that, like, there's a clear appeal here. 
and you, we don't live forever. Again, this maybe this is news to some of you listening, but we do not live forever. Like there is a limited time, not just on this earth, but like in those jobs. 58 is not aged for that, but like it's not every year that the GM of the most prestigious franchise in the National Hockey League becomes available. And you can laugh at that, but it is, despite the lack of success. There's a reason why, despite all the turmoil in the front office and the Brendan Janahan thing that Elliot Friedman will tell you, there's guys coming out of the woodwork, there's people tripping over themselves to make themselves available for this job. If that's the case... Why wouldn't, and Doug, Doug Armstrong, by all accounts, would be at the very top of anybody's list. Like, make everybody a free agent right now. He's the number one selection, maybe? How do you not seriously consider that? Or at least have the conversation. Or at least have the conversation with your owner that, hey, man, I, I know I'm under contract. And I know this is a kind of crucial point, And I really know that this would put you in a bind. Because, yeah, the Maple Leafs are in a bind because they have big decisions upcoming. He thinks the St. Louis Blues don't have big decisions coming. I mean, they got free agency. They got the same stuff. I mean, not to the magnitude of, you know, will your 60-goal scorer re-sign or will you have to trade them before July 1st? But, you know, they have also sizable questions, and that would put Tom Stillman in a horrible position if his executive of the year GM decides to up and leave. But again, who knows when this will present itself? So for that reason, I, I can't totally discount it, despite the contract of it all all right um for some reason the postseason at least the conference championships in both the nba and the nhl have been just total whitewashes i don't get it we got 3030 in both the east and the western final in the national hockey league as the vegas golden knights taking it to the dallas stars yesterday and uh they did so after taking advantage of a five-minute power play after jamie ben Cross-checked Mark Stone in the back while he was on the ice. Two minutes into yesterday's game three. And uh, he was given a game misconduct for it. He was punished. Mark Stone stayed in the game. But we're still waiting to hear about some potential supplementary discipline. He did not speak after that game. Jamie Benn didn't. But today, we got to hear his defense of uh, his cross-check to the back of a guy with a back injury. The game happens fast. Uh, Emotions are high. And... um... Obviously, would have liked to to not fall fall on him, and um, I guess use my stick as a landing point. Usually, don't talk to other players in a playoff series on other teams, but uh, you know, I saw he was okay, so that was great. Yeah, that is that's really very nice and good. Um, yeah, I I I, I know. That like, what are you supposed to say after you pretty clearly cross-check somebody in the back? But I think he kind of had it early on there when he was talking about, hey, you know, it's the heat of the moment and, you know, emotions sometimes get the best of us and what are you going to do? And we move on, we forge ahead and I put my team in a bad spot. But yeah, when you talk about, hey, I, you know, sometimes you got to use your stick to brace your fall on the ice, and sometimes before you get to the ice, there's a human being with a surgically repaired spine laying on it, and sometimes, you know, your stick lands right between C4 and C5. Actually, is that on your neck? 
Anyways, uh, so yeah, I honestly, I don't think Jamie Benn is going to be suspended because of the fact that it was adjudicated within the game. The punishment was pretty severe, that they were handed a five-minute major penalty, that that was the game, that Mark Stone remained in the game. And kudos to Mark Stone. Holy cow. I got, I've been skeptical at times about his availability or lack thereof and and the Golden Knights, you know, trying to manipulate some LTIR spots, but guy's a warrior. Uh, and now he's got his team within a win of the Stanley Cup final and a potential matchup against the Florida Panthers. And yeah, like I mentioned, the NBA's conference finals, well, one's done. One was a sweep. And hey, the Celtics got off the map, Matt, uh, and potentially going to be the first team in the NBA to ever come back from a 3-0 hole. When we come back... So I mentioned that this is a new world when it comes to a balanced schedule in Major League Baseball. What do you got? 14 divisional games instead of 19? And still more games against your division than the other teams in your league. How about we blow up divisions altogether? Top two teams in each league get a bye, and then three through six get into the playoffs. I'll propose that to uh, our next guest, John Morosi of MLB Network and NHL Network. As the fan drive time continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Annis. Text line is open, by the way, 590-590. We'll get to a few of your texts before we uh, take the next break. But we're still trying to figure out what this world of a more balanced schedule means in Major League Baseball, especially for the teams in the best division in baseball. That's the American League East. But I I will tell you what it meant for me last night, that a one-run game between the Orioles and Yankees in May felt really, really important. Uh, Aaron Judge with a homer in the bottom of the ninth. Uh, Felix Bautista, the Yankees win it in extras. And now the Yankees are only five games back at Tampa after they've won five straight. Blue Jays no longer alone in the basement of this division. They're eight and a half games back tied with the Boston Red Sox. Let's talk to uh, our pal, John Morosi, MLB Network, NHL Network. It's been too long, John. How's it going? Ben, I am outstanding. Uh, What a fun time of year to be talking sports. I would actually say that there is no better market to be hosting a sports radio show right now in the entirety of North America than where you are sitting right now, my friend. Yeah, there's there's some some Leaf stuff, man. Like I, it would have been cool if they, <laughs> if, they, if they were playing in in the conference final and you know still alive for a Stanley Cup. But but uh, failing that, there's been lots of meat on the bone when it comes to yeah. the, the executive suite here with the uh, with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Maybe we'll get to that in just a second, John. But I do I I, I want to start with uh, maybe the Blue Jays, but like the the whole of the AL East where. I mean, the the Rays got off to this tremendous start, and they're still there at the at the top of the division. But it's yeah, it's them and like the Orioles are the top two teams in the American League. Well, how do you view the state of this division now? Outside of it being the best in baseball, clearly these are these are five teams 
that are at least above average. But do you think it's like a five-team race to actually win this thing? Like, are all five teams going to be around to game 162? Well, I believe that for now, Ben, that all five teams are still not only mathematically, but but truly still a candidate to win this division. I, I would not expect Boston to be able to do it because I, I don't trust their pitching uh, on the same level that I trust Toronto's pitching, to be honest. I realize they're both tied right now for fourth. We're tied for fifth, depending on one's perspective. But I, I would put greater faith in Toronto's ability to to draw closer to the Rays and maybe still win this division. I fully expect that we will see three teams potentially come out of this division as, as wild cards. The, the second-place team in the West will still be a good team. And I, I, I believe that at the end of the day, that if we clip this interview and play it back in the late days of September, that, that the race for the wild cards will be three teams from the East and one team from the West will be competing for those three spots. Now, the Central will be, to use the NCAA basketball uh, analogy, they will be a one-third lead. They'll have one team in, and that's it. And then it's going to be a, a four teams for three spots among uh, really good uh, competition there with respect to the, the, the maybe the second-place team out West and then, and then three teams there from the East. So that, that's what I'm seeing right now. Uh, and and I, I believe that tonight's game, for that reason, I know we're not even through the month of May, Ben, but Toronto needs to show that they can win series, tough series, on the road against teams ahead of them in this division. Because in the last week, they've lost a series to Baltimore. They've lost a series to the Yankees. And again, last night was a laugher, but, but now it's all square. One-on-one, and again, you just have to begin to get into the rhythm of finding ways to win a series against tough teams on the road in your division. Because if the, if the Jays can't win a series like this one, then you start to wonder, how are they going to string together enough series to make up significant ground and win the division? Because let's remember the big picture here, Ben. This is a team that when the season began, people like me were pegging them as potential American League champions. This is their window to not just win the division, but win a World Series. You still have control of Vlad. You still have control of Bo. They made the move to bring in Bassett, who has delivered so far. Hey, John, we're going we're, we're gonna to try and reconnect with you because you're talking into a, a loaf of bread. Uh, your phone is uh, not very good right now. All right, so we're going to reconnect with John. Um, for some reason, his phone was giving us issues there. Yeah, I, I, we can continue to dunk on the Red Sox if we, if we want, and they lost a couple in a row to the Angels. And, you know, honestly, maybe we got to start giving credit to the Angels who – I'm going to get to this with John coming up that like if we abolished all the divisions and we just do top two teams in each league, get an automatic buy through the wild card round. And then we go playoff spots for teams, three, four, five, and six angels are there and the Yankees are there and the Orioles have a buy, but the angels have done well to make the discussion of a potential Shohei Otani trade before the deadline uh, kind of irrelevant because they're a playoff team right now. All right, John, we 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 got you back, but yeah, I was just I'm back. yeah, you got me now? <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna very good. All right, yeah, you sound so much so much better. And no, it's a good point about the the second place uh, West Division team being a, a factor for sure. 
Um, I do. So uh, this is where I was going to take the conversation next because this is a, a more balanced schedule. What is it? Thirteen games you you play against your divisional right. opponents as opposed to nineteen. I get that we're we're moving closer to everybody playing pretty much the same schedule, but we're not all the way there. Like now that we're we're dipping our toes in the water, why not just bathe in it? Just get rid of all the divisions. We do keep the leagues, but even that, like, I can have a discussion about that, but baby steps here. Blow up the divisions, and we just do top two teams in each league with a bye and then a playoff spot for teams three through six, and then we keep the same format, and everybody plays in a, a, a completely balanced schedule across baseball. Who says no to that? Uh, that's a very fair point. I, I think that for now, as long as we have a 30-team league, we're still going to see the six divisions of five teams. Uh, I think that is the intermediate solution, at least as it stands at the moment. And so you still will give the, the bid, the priority, if you will, to the, the champions of the AL Central, the champions of the NL Central, despite the, the relative uh, lack of competitiveness in those divisions top to bottom. But I do think, to your point, Ben, hold that thought, because once baseball expands to 32 teams, which I believe will happen if not by the time the decade is over, I, I, I would hope it'll happen before the decade is over, but around that time, I believe we will see a 32-team Major League Baseball. And at that point, then the possibilities become really I- intriguing. Do you go with four divisions of eight teams, and then, and then you have two champions, and then sort of wild card, basically the way that you see it in the NHL? Mm-hmm. I, I think that, that idea will become much more common. And, and I think it's going to open up a lot of really intriguing possibilities. Yeah, that, that'll be super interesting whenever that happens. And you're right. I mean, all the, the, the indication is, uh, are, all the indications are that that will happen at some point in the not-too-distant future in Major League Baseball. So um, the Orioles, like I, I mentioned, if, if we do my format right now, and you just look at the, the, the league leaders in the American League and the National League, and who gets the buys? The Orioles have a buy in the American League. They're a top two team right. record-wise in the American League. And I know it's only May, but this is a team that got a lot of criticism in the offseason, John, about about not you know pushing more chips in after the surprising season that they had a, a year ago, that they didn't try harder in free agency to beef up, you know, to add on top of the good young core, to add some veterans. Has that been proven? One, has that been proven correct? And and two, are you believing that the Orioles are not just, you know, a potential threat to make the postseason, but one of the best teams in the American League? They are. A, a couple of things, and I like the way you framed that question, Ben. First of all, I do believe the Orioles are for real. Uh, this is not just a good start, a good first third of the year. They were contending effectively for six months of last year. and And this is a really important point. That, that I think creates a whole bunch of really interesting discussions that we could have for hours and probably will sprinkle throughout the season. If it's the right farm system, if they are the right players, if we're talking about Adley Rutschman and, and this cohort of young players who have arrived, Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, et cetera, Ryan Mountcastle was already there, then you can trust your own players. And it is, in fact, the right decision to, to promote from within and then work around that core and sign your, your Kyle Gibsons in and bring in someone like Yanir Cano, who's been amazing for them so far this season. It's, it's interesting that you'll hear GMs talk about, well, we're going to build from within, and, and spending money in free agency isn't always 
the most efficient way to spend. And that's true. But it only makes sense to truly go from within if what you have within is really great. Mm -hmm. And what the Orioles have right now is a great farm system. Great farm system doesn't always equate to great major league roster. But in this case, they've progressively brought players in. And they've also brought players in from outside, like Jorge Mateo, who can really play. And so they've done, I think, a really good and strategic job of building this roster, and now they're scary. Because if you were to compare, which roster would you rather have right now, Ben? The Orioles roster or the three times as expensive Padres roster? Yeah. No comparison. No. You want Baltimore. You want Baltimore because it's young, controllable. They've got good chemistry. Their their bullpen's excellent. So it depends on who you're banking on. You, You can't just say, fill in the blank team oh yeah we're building from within so we're going to be great all of a sudden well it depends on who your prospects are you can't just say well our prospects are great in the case of baltimore the prospects are that good and that is where they become really as an organization dangerous because now if if it's the late days of july and they say you know what yeah, I'd like to have an Eduardo Rodriguez. I'd like to have a Lucas Giolito. Uh, guys that are out there in the trade market, they have been prospects upon prospects to call upon to make those moves. And that's when a team that's been building, I think, very responsibly for a long period of time, know when it's time to make your play. And I think that, honestly, as great as Tampa Bay has been, Baltimore should not be afraid of them. No, nope. Baltimore, I think, will be able to make a big-time move at the deadline and feel as though they can stand toe-to-toe with any team, especially, I would say this, and I mean this honestly, this is not some hot take. If you look at the roster of Baltimore as it stands right now, and I realize last night's result aside, and, and the, the health of the young players, the Yankee lineup, when they're all healthy, it's great. But if Stanton's hurt and Donaldson's hurt, and if Severino's just coming back, I like Baltimore's roster right now, 1 through 26, better than the Yankees. Judge is an outlier, obviously, but I just think that Baltimore's lineup is more reliable because they're healthier right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know what? They, yeah, it's, I, I'm glad you mentioned them in the same breath as the Rays because they've, they've taken a page out of the Rays' playbook where they take pitchers that are – not much of anything, and turn them into something. And you mentioned Yanir Cano, who was part of the Jorge Lopez deal, who was just, a, frankly, abysmal in, in three appearances a, a season ago. They've turned him into the best reliever in baseball. I mean, this is not a guy that even made the opening day roster for the Orioles, so it's hard to, to say that they knew he would be this guy, but obviously they targeted him in in that trade. Is Like, what do you make of that? Is that just the nature of bullpens that sometimes, you know, you go through seasons where guys just do pop up out of nowhere that this is not some 21 year old guy. He's a 29 year old. He's been around the block a little bit, but all of a sudden he's, you know, throwing a 96 mile an hour sinker and nobody can touch him. Right. It's, it's extraordinary. And, and I think a couple of things, I, I spoke with the people around the Orioles about Cano uh, when they were in Detroit here recently. And I think it's, it's comfort. He was, he came over, he's, he's obviously had the stuff and, and when I see him on the mound, I see Lee Smith. I mean, that, that's who I see. <laughs> in terms of his delivery and, and just the intimidation that he brings to the mound, he, he wasn't fully comfortable last year. And now he's in the zone. So when you have special stuff and you're able to keep a better tempo, he is someone 
for whom, and there are people on the Orioles who believe this, for whom the pitch clock is a good thing. Mm. He's, he's not taking as much time between pitches. He's staying in rhythm and in tempo. And, and I'll say this. You know, Ben, I've always believed that, that I should never do math live on the radio because I'm not good enough in it. <laughs> but I will say this. I do know this, that when you calculate ratios and when, when the denominator is zero, that that ratio would therefore be infinity. So for Yanir Cano, we talk about strikeout to walk ratio. Yeah. Yanir Cano, 25 and two-thirds innings, 28 strikeouts, zero walks. That'll work. Zero. Yeah. His strikeout to walk ratio is <laughs> infinity. And my mathematical sources who are familiar with this stuff, Ben, tell me that an infinity ratio of strikeouts to walks is quite good. Yeah, no, you, I mean, you hit, that's, listen, you, you, that's what you, yeah, you, that's why you went to Harvard, or at least, you know, that was the Harvard ed- education paying off uh, right there. No, he's been unbelievable, <laughs> and he's one of those great stories in baseball. I mean, it's not so great if you're a Blue Jays fan and you have to, like, spend the rest of the year looking over at that guy and, right. and facing him again, but uh, no, he's been, he's been uh, unreal. Um, so I said I, I would get back to the Maple Leafs, and, and I'm going to do that now. And, and your beloved Detroit Red Wings, they have uh, a general manager, and his guys had a pretty good track record, Steve Eiserman. So you guys aren't in need of one. But the Pittsburgh right. Penguins are, are out there shopping, and Kyle Dubas, they, they've made a call to him. Like, How do you feel about Kyle Dubas' standing in the National Hockey League after not just his tenure here in Toronto, in which he finally broke through and, and won a, a playoff round uh, in six games against the Tampa Bay Lightning this year before going out in five to the Florida Panthers, but also the way he departed and and the fallout of, of this past week. How would you feel if you were the fan of a franchise that was hiring Kyle Dubas? I think if I'm a Penguins fan and Dubas gets the job there, I'm very excited. I, I, really, I believe that he has done a good job in, in Toronto. I realize the postseason uh, success has been mixed, to say the very least, and I understand that fully. But when you look at the foundation and all the pressures that go into this job, I believe he's done a masterful job of just building the the, the, the underground, like the, the, the infrastructure of this organization. The, 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 the inner workings there are very, very strong. And I look at the way, big picture here, I've, I've listened to what Elliot has said and Jeff Merrick as well about the, the, the really interesting conversation there with Fenway Sports Group. And I think if I could sort of put the perspective there and understanding who the manager, who the, the, the owner of, of Fenway is and John Henry – and the way that he has run organizations, I see a lot of Theo and the way that Theo Epstein has run organizations in the way that Kyle Dubas has run the Maple Leafs and the thought behind it. And, and I, I think that if John Henry is sitting across from Kyle Dubas and, of course, David Beeston, who you know has a great fluency in both hockey and baseball, if David Beeston and John Henry are having a conversation with Kyle Dubas and they hear the way that Kyle speaks and understand the strategic mind that he has, and the infrastructure that he has put in place uh, with the Leafs, I believe they will take a step back and say, I feel like I'm talking to someone who thinks like Theo. Mm-hmm. And, and if you put yourself in John Henry's perspective and, and that, that strategic thinking that goes into building out a championship organization, I really think, Ben, that, that it is the same language that would have impressed him and Theo two decades ago that, Kyle would be speaking to him sitting across from him in a conversation right now. Uh, and, and what that means, big picture, I think it's anyone's guess. I think that the exit obviously was complicated uh, with Shanahan, and, and I get all that. 
But if you go back, and, and, and historians of, of different organizations, if you go back and read the way that Theo left Boston and then actually came back to Boston in the span of a, a few months there in 2005 with Larry Latino and back and forth, I'm telling you, Ben, there's a lot of similarities there. Uh-huh. It, it, it all seems like it's in parallel, and then eventually Theo came back, he won another championship, and then left again to win with the Cubs. Huh. I'm seeing some similar threads, and, and if I'm John Henry – I really think some of those threads of, of just building out a championship organization with great people. And I really think that Dubas, as much as he said he was, it was going to be Toronto or nowhere, there's going to be a lot of appeal in Pittsburgh because you're going to have a championship owner without a lot of the noise that he had to deal with in Toronto. I think it's going to be a really appealing spot, and it will not surprise me at all if that's where Dubas winds up. No, me neither. Um, and, I, and I love the the parallels you're drawing to, to Theo Epstein. Um, but in in that example, is is like is Sidney Crosby Nomar? I, I Penguins fans are hoping not. Like maybe it's Malkin's Nomar. Who's Nomar? Who who has to be cast aside for right. them to win another championship? Well, and, and so here's the interesting part about this. Uh, thinking about the Penguins, are they? are they a Stanley Cup contender right now in their roster? And that's where I I compare them a bit. And, again, you you referenced the Wings a little bit earlier. They're almost where the Wings were in the the later years of of Datsuk and Zetterberg. They're they're entertaining enough that that they can either make the playoffs or be around that that conversation. But but the Wings weren't going to beat the Blackhawks, okay? And if if the Penguins had made the playoffs – I don't see them as having – I don't think they would have beaten Boston. Uh, I don't believe so. And obviously, now that you look at how close Florida and the Penguins were in the regular season, I mean, we can be tricked into thinking that, okay, well, if the Penguins had made it, could they have done what Florida has done? I would say no, although Casey DeSmith has looked pretty good playing for the U.S. at World, so who knows, right? Mm. Uh, but Brodsky has been next level. Like This has been something that no one could have anticipated. And you now look at Florida's Florida's lineup and how deep they are. The, the Pittsburgh's forward group is not as deep as what Florida has. Whatever the regular season record said, Bennett, Reinhardt, obviously Kachuk is a superstar. Barkoff until the injury. Look how good they are right now. Like I just and Montour's become a star. I mean Montour, I think, is one of the best defensemen in the league right now. So I, I just think it's it's amazing how the narrative can shift based on the results of one or two regular season games. Um, but I, I think the Penguins are closer to being a team that needs to be rebuilt than one that's going to win the Cup. And, and if Dubas walks in with a really good plan to John Henry and says, listen, you give me four to five or six years, mm-hmm. I can make this team into a Cup team again. I, I, I think it's, the Penguins are more of a four, five, six-year team than a next-year rebuild and win it with Sid. That's, that's my honest assessment of it, but... You can still be compelling with Sid. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to win the cup with Sid in 2024. No, but I don't think you want to be the guy that trades Sid. And I don't think anyone's trading Sid. I think Sid's going to be there for the duration, but it's a great point, right. John. I agree. I agree. Uh, John, thanks as always. I didn't think I was going to talk that much hockey. Trust, trust what Elliot and Merrick tell you about <laughs> hockey. I'm just here for some, some interesting ideas here and there. Run everything by them first before you actually – Trust the hockey stuff for oh, me. Oh, okay? don't be so modest. You work for the NHL Network, John. No, That's you're you're legit, and you're from Michigan. Thank See you, John. You. See ya. Thanks so much. All the best. All right, John Morosi, MLB Network and NHL Network, and uh, we have another Toronto FC giveaway. This time for Saturday's matchup against DC United at 7:30 down at BMO Field to enter for a chance to win. Text today's code word Franklin.
to 59590. Again, today's code word is Franklin. Text this in right now for your chance to win tickets to Saturday's game, 590-590. Speaking of the text line, which will now be flooded by Franklin's, uh, earlier I was calling through them. Uh, I'm going to respond to a couple right now, a couple of uh, baseball-related ones. Uh, Texter says, hypothetically, if you were the manager of the Jays and Ryu was to come back today, what would your roster move be? And then he goes on to detail, like, Manoa to AAA, which obviously is not going to happen. Also, there's the Chad Green of it. I mean, yeah, both guys are on similar timelines for Tommy John. Both had him in June of of last season. But because Green is a reliever, you would think there's, like, less of a ramp up that he would be earliest uh, available. There's... No obvious move right now. I mean, it is an interesting question, no doubt. And it's probably one that will become obvious because there'll be an injury or a lack of performance or whatever. Um, Anthony Bass is is maybe a guy that you, if you feel comfortable that Chad Green's going to be a viable member of your bullpen, that you either find a, you know, a convenient injury situation for him or... Worst case scenario, he's you know the last guy in your bullpen. You don't mind DFAing him, and maybe he accepts a, a a demotion to the minor leagues. Adam Simber has been. I mean, he does have options. He's been such a a vital piece of this Blue Jays bullpen that you're not likely to demote him. But he's he is a guy with options. And Nate Pearson, I know he's performed well. Again, if we're talking about the Chad Green of a couple of years ago with the New York Yankees, that's that's somebody that's an upgrade over just about it everybody outside of maybe Eric Swanson and Jordan Romano. And the Ryu thing, I, I, I think he's what ideally you hoped Mitch White would be, who had another injury setback. There's there's enough room to, to fit him into the bullpen mix uh, as well. Another texter says, Aaron Judge was flailing away, hitting 19 homers when he was Vlad's age. He had four home runs in the majors at Vlad's age. If you're making the comparison... Be honest. Well, okay. I'll, I'll, I will be honest uh, because I, I do have Aaron Judge's baseball reference page open. And you're right. He was 24 years old. He took his first steps into Major League Baseball in 27 games. And you're right. Hit four home runs. But then in his first full season, the next year, at 25 years old, in 155 games, he won the Rookie of the Year, hitting 52 home runs. Okay? And then since then... He's essentially went healthy, and that's been the big question mark for him. It was not whether the power was real or not. It was whether this guy could stay on the field, and he chose a pretty good time to to start doing that, heading up to signing his historic um, extension with the New York Yankees. This guy's been just lights out as far as the power is concerned. The power was never a question with Aaron Judge. The question around Aaron Judge has been entirely, entirely health. Uh, and also, like, a couple people texting about succession, talking about Logan being alive, which is the absolute worst possible scenario. It's not one that's that's possible. I don't know why anyone would want that to be revealed on Sunday. That's, like, a different show. That's something that's horrible. And, yeah, Greg the Egg succeeding at the end of succession, also kind of lame. I don't think it's going to happen. But uh, thank you to all that texted in. When we come back... So the Steve Nash thing is more than a curiosity, it seems, when it comes to his potential assuming the role of head coach of the Toronto Raptors. Grange had a great report uh, about him actually sitting down for a legit interview and impressing and seeming like a guy that wants back into the game. God knows if it were me 
and I suffered through what he had to suffer through. I mean, suffer in quotation marks. I, I understand he was, he was paid handsomely. But getting run through the media cycle, having to deal with Kyrie Irving on a nightly basis, I might not want to return to the helm of an NBA franchise, but he does. Kudos to him. Uh, we'll talk to a man who knows him well, covered him during his time with the Nets, Frank Isola of ESPN's Around the Horn and PTI, Sirius XM, NBA Radio as well. He joins me next as the fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Annis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Covering the Raptors in depth like no one else. The Raptor Show with Will Lou. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. So in his latest piece on Sportsnet.ca, Michael Grange dropped this nugget on the Steve Nash-Toronto Raptors relationship this offseason. Steve Nash did get a formal formal interview recently and impressed both with his preparation and his apparent determination to get back on an NBA bench. End quote. Slightly surprising from a guy that went through the turmoil uh, that he had to endure in Brooklyn with the Nets and Kyrie Irving and KD and all of that. Um, let's talk to Frank Isola, ESPN's Around the Horn and PTI Sirius XM NBA Radio. Frank, how's it going? What does Michael Grange know? He not, doesn't know not much. No, he's not. No, Mike, no Mike's a, he's big time. Great guy, great reporter, great writer, the whole thing. So he knows. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing well. No, he's, he's very plugged into this situation. And, uh, yeah, he was uh, – He's early on on all of these, uh, I don't know, off the the, the, the beaten path uh, coaching candidates for, for the Raptors. And, and, and Nash has recent experience, and he's an all-time great in this country and a Hall of Famer and all that. But I am, I'm surprised, well, one, that they, they reached out considering how much of a disaster it was in Brooklyn. And like I said, Frank, and you, and you got a firsthand seat uh, to, to see it all un, unravel there in Brooklyn, that he is so anxious to, to get back on the horse, Are, does it surprise you that that he's going through the hiring cycle? No, I think I think a he's a competitive person. I think you know now going into his next job, obviously he's going to have more experience. So you 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 called it a disaster, but I think if you go back to a couple of years ago when Milwaukee won the championship, so in the first round they beat Boston in five games, mm-hmm. and then they were up on Milwaukee two games to oh. So in their first seven playoff games, they were six and one. And that's against Boston with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. And that's, you know, Brad Stevens is coaching that team. And, you know, that's Milwaukee, which went on to win the championship. And then, of course, James Harden got hurt. Uh, And then the next game, Kyrie Irving got hurt. And it still came down to Kevin Durant nearly winning it on a last-second shot, which ended up being uh, a game-tying shot, not a game-winning shot, that shot that he hit at the end of regulation of Game 7. So they nearly won that series. And I, I do think that, you know, the next year, I think there was a lot of nonsense going on, um, you know, with, with Kyrie and the vaccination status and things like that. It was always a bit of a circus. They ended up trading James Harden because he wasn't getting along with guys. But Steve actually has a really good temperament. I, I thought there were times when probably, you know, he was, you wish that he would maybe show a little bit more anger mm-hmm. after games and maybe call out the players a little bit more. But I think sometimes you know, that comes with, uh, a little bit of experience as well. So I, I think all in all, 
I actually think he did a, a pretty good job under the circumstances. Again, when the team was healthy, they were six and one in their first seven playoff games, and that's and Steve was coaching the team then. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see if, like, yeah, Kevin Durant was just like a shoe size smaller. Um, how exactly. history plays out because uh, it was so damn close. Uh, he he had his 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 right hand man there at, at the beginning, Mike D'Antoni as well, and and that was I, I if I recall correctly. One of the, the, you know, his first media availabilities talked about leaning on people with with more experience. Um, did did that, like, and I know D'Antoni didn't last the entire tenure there, but, like, how much of a collaborative effort was it with Steve in place? Oh, I think very much so. But, you know, remember, he had Ime Udoka there, who had been a, an assistant coach for a, a long time with San Antonio and with the Philadelphia 76ers. The next year he ends up getting a, a, a job with the Boston Celtics, obviously Mike D'Antoni with a ton of experience and also Jock Vaughn was on that staff who comes from the San Antonio Spurs, you know, and, you know, played under Jerry Sloan, worked and coached under Greg Popovich and also had been a head coach with the Orlando Magic. So he surrounded himself with experienced guys. And it's interesting because I think if you look at what's going on with Boston right now, with Joe Missoula. So last year, their coaching staff included Ime Udoka, Will Hardy, and also Damon Stoudemire. So, you know, two of those guys became NBA head coaches. Damon Stoudemire became a college head coach, and they didn't replace him with anybody. Mm. So I think Joe Mazzulla has been hurt by the fact that he doesn't have that much experience on the bench. And I think Steve is smart enough to know that it's, you need experienced people around you. You need smart people around you. And, you know, obviously you're going to have a young, younger guys, too, who are ambitious. There's nothing wrong with that. And remember, that first, you know, that second year in Brooklyn, he also had Steve Clifford mm. working as a coaching consultant. So Steve, you know, the, you know, Steve is is almost too humble in some ways, and I think you know, kind of the stories that were get, that were out there and the narrative that he's, you know, completely in over his head. Yes, he was young for the most part and inexperienced in terms of head coaching, but he surrounded himself with a lot of good people, you know, and and he was putting the work in for a guy that's achieved a lot in the league, two MVPs, you know, Hall of Fame player, played on some unbelievable teams with the Phoenix Suns, great teams with the Dallas Mavericks. He wasn't one of these guys that was, well, I'm Steve Nash. I'm going to roll in when I want and everyone else do the work and I'll just be the face of the, of the team and I'll look good on the sidelines calling timeouts. It wasn't like that at all. Just like he did as a player, he was putting in the work as a coach. So again, I think these guys, you know, when they get that second and third job, they're just going to be better at it. Look at Frank Vogel. What was Frank Vogel on his third job? Won won an NBA championship. You know, it, it, it takes some time. So I think if the Toronto Raptors hired him and I don't know what they're going to do, I definitely think they're getting a good coach, and they're going to get a guy that a is going to surround himself with really good people, and will and will definitely be better than he was in Brooklyn. And I actually think he was pretty good in Brooklyn. Yeah, it's a totally different situation, though, Frank. Right, and he was almost handpicked by by KD and Kyrie, which is uh, interesting considering KD asked for him to be fired uh, before uh, last season, and you know eventually uh, got himself extricated from that situation himself, anyways. But. Um, that that he was handpicked by those guys, and that was obviously a franchise that was trying to win championships right out of the gate. This Raptors team is not that, right? I don't know, frankly, I don't know where this Raptors team is going. And I guess this is a big off season for them. The potential trade of uh, Pascal Siakam would certainly change the trajectory. But how do you how do you evaluate? Uh, what are your what are your thoughts? What is your guess about how he would? fit as far as a team that's not on the precipice of winning a championship, but maybe more in a developmental phase. Oh, I, I definitely think he would be good in that environment as well. First of all, as you, I mean, you would know better than me. I know he's from 
you know, Western Canada, but he understands that market mm-hmm. really well. He would he he'd fit right in up there. But he just has a way about him with players. And I think, you know, it's funny. You know, I covered a guy in New York, Stefan Marbury, as a point guard, was a terrific player, but like his teammates really never embraced him because he really didn't embrace them as well. And Kyrie's like that too, where players know that Kyrie's a great player, but as a point guard, you need, you really need to be a leader and, and a guy that is you know embraces the whole team and is a vocal leader on the court, does the right things um, on the court as well. And that's always the way Steve Nash has been. Ask any of the guys that played with him in Phoenix. I mean, come on, Sean Marin, who I talked to at the All-Star game, they rave about Steve Nash, Quentin Richardson, guys like that. Obviously, Amari Stoudemire, the guys that he played with in Dallas, like Dirk Nowitzki, they're going to tell you the same thing. I mean, Steve is is very humble. He's all about the team. He's going to try to do whatever it takes to make other people around him better. He's going to be all about winning, I think. Again, I'm sure there's a lot of good candidates out there, and I'm sure – you know, there's going to be somebody that they that did that they didn't consider who would be a great candidate as well. But if they would hire Steve Nash, you know, I just think it's unfair. Some of the the talk, you know, mm-hmm. people say, "Oh my God, why do, why would they hire him?" I, I just think that's a it's unfair, and I, don't, and I don't really think it's accurate in terms of the the time that he had in Brooklyn. I actually think he did a really good job, and I think he'd be good in any situation. And I'm not getting paid by Steve Nash. You know, I, <laughs> I mean, I know who Steve Nash is. It's not like we talk every day on the phone, so I'm, I have nothing to gain by it. I really, I, Honestly, I don't care, but I do think he'd do really well. Yeah, I think the denigration comes, Frank, because people look at him as a vibes guy, right? Like he was brought into that Brooklyn situation to just, I mean, and part of it is Kyrie saying, hey, we're all kind of head coaches, right? Like that was like his entree into being the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets was, was the the players saying that ah, we don't really have a head coach. So everybody just assumed he was like a cheerleader. And and it, the things you say about point guards, hundred percent true about him, obviously such a leader of men and able to bring people together that that was, I think people viewed him as that was his, his role in that gig and maybe not yep. necessarily X's and O's. So is that, is that where the unfair a- accusation comes about, you know, Steve Nash's capabilities as a head coach that he's not X's and O's that he's a vibes guy. Yeah, and, and I also think I, th- I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I also think when you do take over a great team, and I think a lot of guys want to coach great players, but when you don't win, you know the the expectations, the pressure is increased. And I think if you go back to the first year that LeBron James was in Miami, you know Eric Spoelstra had been a head coach for a few years after replacing Pat Riley, but obviously he never won a championship. And that first year they get to the finals and they end up losing to Dirk Nowitzki in Dallas, and the idea is, oh, you know, maybe Eric Spolster is in over his head. Maybe he can't be a guy that can coach superstar players. Now, here we are, fast forward all these years later, what do people say about Eric Spolster? A lot of people think, well, he's clearly the best coach in the league, a lot of people believe. So, you know, I I think sometimes, you know, if you're successful in a job, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be successful in another job, but I think if you didn't win – with the talent that he had, that that was in Brooklyn, I do think there are circumstances. And be fair, you know, Kyrie Irving. That's that's not an easy guy to coach. Nope. You know, I, I know one of his coaches that he. I'm not going to say the guy's name. Basically, but if Kyrie had come back to the team, they, the guy didn't want to coach anymore. Like mm-hmm. Kyrie could be a handful. He's obviously a talented player, but there's always a lot of nonsense with Kyrie. And so, and it's always I always say this about Kyrie. It's always something, and that always something usually leads to not playing basketball. Mm-hmm. So then you don't have him for a lot of games for whatever reason. And when he's out there, he's not the greatest defensive player. He's not a great leader. And then if you're also being fair about it, you know, LeBron did make it to a, a bunch of finals after Kyrie left Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And Boston Celtics have done pretty well since he left. Brooklyn, it hasn't been as good, but that's also, you also have Kevin Durant leaving as well. So he could be a handful. So I think the fact that Steve went through 
coaching a guy like Kevin Durant, James Harden, who was having issues with um, management and Kyrie. Let's not forget about Ben Simmons, who was also on the team <laughs> when Steve was there. So, so yeah. Steve has dealt with a lot, and every team has issues. But I think wherever Steve goes, the issues are not going to be as nutty and as magnified as they were when they were in Brooklyn. No, it seems like a pretty steady ship here in Toronto under Masai Ujiri's leadership. They haven't won as much, at least the last couple of years, as as, as they would uh, hope and expect after winning a championship in 2019. But yeah, n- not not the same cast of characters that he had to deal with, uh, specifically Kyrie Irving during nope. his time in Brooklyn. But he's, I, I think we would all agree that he's not like at the top of everybody's mind as far as the most desirable coaching candidates and understandably so and maybe it's you're right maybe it's an Eric Spolstra Spolstra situation that he needs to go through his next cycle and then you know he has great success with the Raptors and he becomes that who knows but I I wonder what you think about the desirability of this Raptors job because hey I know there's only 30 NBA franchises so they're all like some level of, of desirability but there's a lot of really high profile openings right now Frank and the Raptors find themselves at an interesting point in uh, in in needing a new head coach that there's some teams with championship aspirations around them that also need a new head coach. Yeah. You know, I, I do think that the best job out there right now is the Milwaukee bucks, just because you have Giannis Antetokounmpo and you're going to have Drew holiday back. And I don't know about what's going to happen with Chris Middleton, but you know, you have a superstar player that is driven and committed and wants to play and is a great guy in the whole thing. So I think that's the best job. That's out there. The Toronto job is obviously good. First of all, they've already won a championship. Number one, yeah. there is talent there. They have a, a GM that's driven. Now the GM could also be tough or the president. I'm talking about the side could be tough on his coaches. We, we all kind of know that, but I do think, you know, you do have owners with, with deep pockets. It's a great market. The fans up there are phenomenal. I mean, it's, to me, it's one of the best NBC. You know, I, I was, I covered the beat, uh, the the Knicks for, you know, between 50, I think it's like 18 years I did it. So I was always up in Toronto going way back when, even into the 99, uh, 2000 playoffs, whatever it was, or 2001. Mm-hmm. You know, their fans up there are tremendous. The arena is as good of a basketball arena as it's funny. For a hockey town, their arena is better than most NBA arenas, including Boston, which is a basketball town. But every everything about the market is tremendous. So it's certainly a desirable job, I would think. But when it comes to right now, and I think probably most coaches, if they're being realistic, think, well, I'm probably only going to be somewhere two or three years before they fire me. So if I'm only going to be somewhere two or three years, <laughs> I think I could win right away with the Milwaukee Bucks and Giannis. Yeah, and and that's that's totally fair. Um, and who knows, the Sixers job is a weird one because who knows what happens with with James Harden and you know the fallout there after the Doc Rivers firing. Yeah, but- no, it is a weird one. It might actually be better if he leaves. That's, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> that's a story for another day. Yeah. <laughs> it, it it might be. Um, but yeah, you you mentioned Boston, who might also have a head coach opening uh, if things don't continue to turn around for them. Is Joe Mazzula very much uh, uh, under the gun here, uh, going down three games to none, and then you know getting off the mat? There, it's three one now the, that series, and it, it's never before happened a team coming back from three zero. We kind of thought last year would be the year Raptors against the Sixers, um, but it didn't happen, obviously. Um, but yeah, I, well, one, do you think it'll ever happen in the sport? And if it is going to happen, isn't this kind of like a prime candidate for that to happen yeah i think i agree on both counts because now it's it's down to three games and two of those would be in boston and obviously boston has a ton of talent i think talent wise that they they're probably the well they are the most talented team left in the playoffs i think when the playoffs start i think it was boston milwaukee the two most talented teams so from that standpoint 
they they definitely have it. Now, that they are playing an opponent in Miami that's well coached and their role players are terrific. I still think all the pressure in the world is on Boston. You know, in their last seven home playoff games, they're two and five. They're yeah. four and five this postseason, but the first two they won were games one and two in the first round against Atlanta. So if you take those two out, they've they've only won two of their last seven home playoff games, and that includes obviously two losses in the first. I mean, in this round to the Miami Heat. I do think you're right. I think there's a chance. It's definitely going to happen at some point mm-hmm. in the NBA. Let's not kid ourselves. But you also have to want it to happen. So to Boston's credit, you know they're down nine in the third quarter last night. And that's a moment where there could be a little give up in the team and, and maybe a little quit. There certainly was a ton of quit in them the game before that. But Jason Tatum, and if you look over his career, just look recently, go back to game six of the second round last year against Milwaukee when they were an elimination game. He scored 46 points. Look what he did in the final four minutes against Philadelphia in game six on the road elimination game. And then last night, the same thing. I mean, the guy was nothing short of phenomenal. There's still a long way to go for Boston. And for me, all the pressure is still on them. And if they fall behind tomorrow at home, I think the only thing worse for Boston getting swept will be losing tomorrow. Because that will mean that they lost three home games to Miami. That would mean that they went two and six in the last eight home playoff games. So <laughs> it actually could be a, a nastier situation tomorrow night if they lose. If they win tomorrow, then then it'll get interesting because then the pressure is on Miami. I know Reggie Miller last night on TNT was saying Miami's got the pressure on them now. I don't buy that yeah. at all. Miami, Miami, for me, is still in the driver's seat. But we'll see what happens. You know, it's... Uh, crazy things have happened, and I'm getting a little tired of hearing about Heat culture. So maybe it'd be a little <laughs> humble pie. Not so much, not so much for the players, but the Miami media. Oh my yeah. God, man! They drink the cool. They drink the Kool Aid more than anybody up there. I mean, down there, I should say. Yeah. Do you think they're going to start banning members of the 2004 Yankees from attending these games, like Derek Jeter, A <laughs> Rod, in attendance, down 3-0 for for the Celtics, another Boston team? Like that is that's a little creepy, is it not? Yeah, it was. Uh, it's funny too. You know, Alex Rodriguez's date was Anthony Edwards of the <laughs> Minnesota Timberwolves, and Derek Jeter had his uh, his lovely wife. And I thought that was pretty funny as well. Plus, you know, Derek Jeter and Alex Rodriguez weren't exactly best buddies when they were uh, teammates in New York. Mm-hmm. But it is funny, especially for Derek Jeter, how much he won in New York, and now because of this, he's identified. Oh, that's right. He was a, you know one of the main guys on a team <laughs> that you know that blew that three zero series lead to Boston. But I've said this a couple of times. The one, you know, as you know, baseball is different because it comes down to starting pitching. Yep. You know, the same Miami Heat team is showing up for games, you know, assuming nobody gets hurt in games five, six, and seven. Once the Yankees lost game five up in Boston and the series went back to New York, people may not remember, but John Lieber started uh, game six and then they started Kevin Brown in game seven. I actually went to that game as a uh, as a fan, Kevin Brown didn't get out of the second inning. He got booed off the mound, yep. and it was pretty amazing. Javier Vasquez was warming up in the bullpen, and he came in to pitch to um, Johnny Damon with the yep. bases loaded. And his first pitch to Johnny Damon, you hear the crack of the bat, and when I tell you, <laughs> you could actually hear the ball sailing through the, the, the night up in the Bronx. And that he hit the grand slam, and you could hear a pin drop. In the, and all I kept thinking about was Javier Vasquez warming up the bullpen. You get thrown into this game in the second inning with the bases loaded. The first pitch he threw, he almost got whiplash looking back at the ball flying, <laughs> flying past him. So there, it is a little bit – it's It's the same in terms of 0-3 and they came back and won, 
but it's very different. Because obviously, in baseball, the pitching is so important. Yes, thank you for reminding me of Javi Vasquez. And yeah, we have the same thing here in Toronto where there's some guys that are just good, but like when you get to the spotlight of, of the big market when it comes to the hockey team and in the case of New York when it comes to wearing the pinstripes, yeah, Javi Vasquez and, and New York City didn't 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 quite mesh there. Yeah. No. Well, well, but I also, well, you guys in Toronto have had it pretty good too. Though. I was there the night when uh, Joe Carter hit the home run, which is pretty, pretty cool to be there for that. Yeah. So you guys have had success. Come on now. Yeah, we have. Hey, Frank, this was uh, this was great. Thanks for doing this. All right. Take care. Anytime. Frank Isola, ESPN's Around the Horn, PTI, Sirius XM, NBA Radio, and kind of down a 180 on the Steve Nash thing. He convinced me because, yeah, I had this perception. And, and man, in, in modern coaching, well, especially when it comes to baseball, how much of your job is, is vibes, is making sure nobody punches each other out, and how much of it is actually tactics. Because you can get people to help you with the tactics and you can learn on the job and it's not that much involved, especially when you've got a superstar player. Just play him 48 minutes. Good good call. Um, but yeah, that Steve Nash has gotten a, a, a rough go of it media-wise since his departure from Brooklyn. I, I Wouldn't you love to watch him resuscitate his career in his, I was going to say birth country, I think he was born in, in South Africa, in his native land? That'd be kind of neat. All right, Blue Jays and Rays going to play the third of four games tonight. We have a lineup uh, against Shane McClanahan, the lefty, who's arguably the best pitcher in baseball. And quite notably, well, there's a couple of notable things. One is that Nathan Lucas gets another start. Now, he's left-handed. He's getting a start against the lefty, but McClanahan has reverse splits. I don't know if that matters when it's Shane McClanahan. He's still good against both sides. And no Alejandro Kirk getting two games off in a row for the first time this season. Curious, curious stuff, to say the least. All right, time now for a last call brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. We got the uh, Panthers trying to put the Canes to bed, and they are minus 114 favorites over the Canes, who are minus 103. Sergei Bobrovsky, I mean, has to be the leader in the clubhouse to win the Conn Smythe Trophy. Heat Celtics, as uh, Frank mentioned, goes tomorrow as the Celtics trying to stay alive, and they're big favorites at home, minus seven and a half points in game five against the uh, Miami Heat. And this game tonight with Yusei Kikuchi on the hill, trying to get that slider back to being as effective as it was early on in the season, our uh, big-time underdogs, as you would imagine, against Shane McClanahan. Blue Jays plus 163 if you want to see them at least earn a series split against the Rays. Rays minus 190. And that was Last Call, brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. No show tomorrow because of the Blue Jays game in the afternoon, but I'll be doing Jays talk for you. You got Blair and Barker coming your way in mere moments, and then uh, Blue Jays and Rays. Enjoy Blair and Barker in the baseball game. This has been the Fan Drive Time. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan.